scripture reading this morning comes from Isaiah, chapter 11, verses 1 to 10. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of counsel and of might, the spirit of the knowledge and fear of the Lord, and he will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears, but with righteousness he will judge the needy. With justice he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. With the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. Righteousness will be his belt and faithfulness the sash around his waist. The wolf will live with the lamb, the leopard will lie down with the goat, the calf and the lion and the yearling together, and a little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear, their young will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox. The infant will play near the cobra's den, and the young child will put its hand into the viper's nest. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day, the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the peoples. The nations will rally to him, and his resting place will be glorious. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, everyone. My name is Matt Lynch, and it's a privilege to be with all of you here today. I teach at Regent College, so I bring greetings from Regent as well, and it's an honor for me and my family to uh, be here this morning. One of the things I love about Vancouver forests is the way that trees grow up from old stumps in the ground. The high moisture content in the Vancouver area makes those stumps into compost piles Uh, such that trees can grow up out of them. And sometimes in the forest, you even see like a fallen log, and, and on that log, the moss will grow, and then the seeds can bed easily in that moss. And sometimes you'll see a straight line of trees that grows in the forest as a result of that. It's called a nurse log when you get that, that log that, that grows with trees coming up out of it. The book of Isaiah which is where our reading was taken from this morning, is quite taken with trees, especially here in chapter 11. But this isn't the first time that Isaiah pays attention to trees. If you read the preceding chapters in the book of Isaiah, you would think that God is something of a lumberjack, always chopping down trees left, right, and center. In Isaiah 2, we read that Yahweh has a day against all the cedars of Lebanon, tall and lofty, and all the oaks of Bashan. You'd think, what's wrong with trees that God is, is so against them? But the point then is that the Lord alone will be exalted on that day. Then in chapter 6 of Isaiah, we read about how God is going to chop down the tree of Israel, such that it's only a stump that's left. And even that stump, God is going to burn to the ground in an act of dramatic judgment. 
In chapter 10, just before the chapter that we're looking at this morning, we read the following. See, the Lord, the Lord Almighty, will lop off the boughs with great power. The lofty trees will be felled. The tall ones will be brought low. He will cut down the forest thickets with an axe. Lebanon will fall before the mighty one. This is a passage about the power of Assyria. You see, Isaiah is writing during a time when the kingdom of Israel had weakened dramatically. The powers that um, surrounded Israel were ascending and were becoming more and more dominant. And the number one superpower on the rise was the kingdom of Assyria. And God was using the kingdom of Assyria to bring judgment on Israel and Judah. But God is also saying that he would then turn and take the axe to the tree of Assyria such that it would be chopped down as well. So by the time you get to chapter 11, which is what we're looking at this morning, it's, it's as if the whole forest has been clear-cut. It's, it's, a, it's, a it's a field of stumps with nothing left, or a forest stripped of trees. It's a pretty devastating scene, really. And the point made through all these images is that God is against everything that raises itself up. That's why Isaiah uses the tree imagery, that vertical uh, self-aggrandizement of those in power. God is going to bring down all the powerful such that God alone is exalted. God will judge in a way that's totally devastating. And against that backdrop, almost spoken as if in a whisper, almost softly, we read the following. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. It's whispered over the smoldering ashes of a clear-cut forest where almost every stump was burnt to the ground. We don't know the exact time period where this prophecy comes from that Isaiah speaks, but it likely reflects a time when all hopes for a righteous king to come out of Israel or Judah was totally gone. The mighty trees had fallen. The great kings of the past were, well, past. And Isaiah doesn't just say, God's going to sort of freshen up the monarchy or he's going to spruce it up a bit and bring us a, a better king. Instead, we're going back to the roots. From these roots, a branch or a shoot will begin to grow. Perhaps some of you here today are feeling like you're in that sort of clear-cut forest situation. You've almost lost all hope Maybe you're feeling stuck or devastated by some life or family event, a lost job or maybe a career or relationship. And my encouragement today is to let Isaiah point you toward that one little sprout growing up in an otherwise devastated field or forest. And let's watch it grow. Today we're going back to look at this image of hope that emerges from the stump of Jesse. Now, Jesse was King David's father. So for Isaiah to say that something's coming out of the stump of Jesse and not just out of the royal line, it's as if 
you know, the, the whole kingship thing isn't going well. Let's go all the way back to the beginning and look for hope there. And all of this for Isaiah happens by the power of the Spirit. For Isaiah, it begins with the Spirit and then it continues in the just rule of the Spirit-anointed King. And it extends eventually out to all of creation, as we see toward the end of the passage. So that'll form the structure of my sermon this morning. First, the spirit. Second, the just rule of the king. And third, creation's renewal. For Isaiah, it's the spirit that brings fruit from this branch that springs forth. It's the spirit that restarts the kingly line of Israel. And that shouldn't be surprising. Bringing new life is kind of the Spirit's business in the Old Testament. If we go all the way back to the story of creation, in the first chapter of the Bible, i got to stop hitting that mic. Um, If we go back to Genesis 1, we read that God's Spirit is hovering over the surface of the water. And then God breathes out those first words, let there be light. Here now in Isaiah 11, verse 2, we read these words, the spirit of the Lord will rest upon him. That's the Messiah. The spirit of wisdom, of understanding, the spirit of counsel and of might, the spirit of knowledge and fear of the Lord. The Spirit has royal associations in the Old Testament. Back in the book of Samuel, where the kingship first started in Israel, we read that the Spirit came upon King Saul, the first king, and then was withdrawn from him, and then was given to King David. And in a ceremony in 1 1 Samuel 16, 13, we read the following. So Samuel, who was a prophet, took the horn of oil and anointed David in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. From an Old Testament point of view, being Messiah, which means anointed one, meant not only that you'd be king, but that you would be a Spirit-anointed king. But strangely, after David in the Old Testament, we don't read about any other spirit-anointed king until these words in Isaiah. Later in the book of Isaiah, we hear someone say, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. Those are the words that Jesus chooses when he preaches his first sermon in Nazareth. In the Gospel of Luke, he says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me. There again, you have spirit and anointing brought together. Jesus is identifying himself as the Messiah anointed by the Spirit. At his baptism, the Gospels tell us that the Spirit of God descended upon Jesus in the form of a dove. And then God declares, this is my son, in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Notice in this verse in Isaiah that the Messiah is anointed by a sevenfold spirit. It's the spirit of the Lord, the spirit of wisdom, of understanding, of counsel, of might, 
of knowledge and fear of the Lord. The number seven throughout the Old Testament emphasizes completeness or wholeness, sacredness. This is a king like no other. Elsewhere in the Old Testament, the spirit rushes upon people or comes powerfully upon them, but here the spirit is resting. There's an enduring quality to the anointed power of the spirit. It's an ongoing feature of this king's life. And from that sevenfold spirit anointing comes the just rule of the king, explained in verses three to five. Spirit gifts are always meant to be given away for the good of the community, especially those who are on the margins. In Isaiah's day, the opposite was happening. Isaiah begins his book with a scorching critique of those in power. People were coming to the temple in Jerusalem and bringing their offerings and celebrating their festivals. And most significantly, they were lifting up their hands in prayer, a real pious posture. But Isaiah says to the people, look, your hands, they're covered in blood. And it's not the blood of sacrifices that were on their hands. It was the blood of victims, the blood of the poor. When you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you offer many prayers, I am not listening. Your hands are full of blood. Israel's leaders had abused their power while maintaining this appearance of religiosity. In her book, Celebrities for Jesus, Caitlin Beatty notes that while the temptations of sex and money are often talked about in the church, the temptations of power receive comparatively little attention. Power, she notes, is a gift given by the giver of all good gifts. But power is not given to benefit those who hold it. It's given for the flourishing of individuals, people, and the cosmos itself. Power's right use is especially important for the flourishing of the vulnerable, the members of the human family who most need others to use power well to survive and thrive, the young, the aged, the sick, and the dispossessed. Yet some leaders grow like large trees that spread their branches, block the sunlight, and kill everything underneath them. Nothing around them can flourish. Good leaders, on the other hand, attend to those without power in ways that leave them empowered. I've seen teachers and leaders who can dazzle an audience with their speaking. They're decisive in the way that they lead, but they leave those around them without any agency, without any power. They grow up like those tall trees. It's interesting when Isaiah wants to paint a picture of Israel's restoration, he uses another tree analogy. But this one is poplar trees that grow along the stream. When the people return from their exile, Isaiah says, they will spring like grass in a meadow, like poplar trees by flowing streams. Poplars provide vital shade along streams and rivers to help support life in those rivers, to enable them to flourish, even as they are nourished by the water of the river itself. Spirit-anointed leaders bring life to others. 
Notice the qualities of this spirit-anointed leader in verses 3 and 4. Isaiah says, And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears, but with righteousness he will judge the needy. With justice he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. Note the contrasting image in Matthew 20, and Caitlin Beatty points this out as well, where Jesus says, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. But not so with you. Among Jesus' followers, a different spirit is at work, ruling for others rather than over others, makes all the difference in the world. Notice here that the king delights in the fear of the Lord. What a strange thing to say. Why would someone delight in the fear of the Lord? It just doesn't sound right to to our modern ears. What if I said, oh, you just have to meet my dad. You'll be so afraid of him. Or you'll love my new boss. She's someone who will really scare you stiff. Isaiah is directing this word, and this is important, I think, to the rulers. He's directing, he's describing this as a quality of the ruler, for whom it's especially important that they live in the fear of the Lord. Reverent, awe, and worshipful respect are important for all Christians, to be sure, but especially for those in power. Each of us is in some position of power. Right? Maybe in our family, our workplace, in our community. Fear is an important ingredient to the right use of power, according to Isaiah 11. Fear of the Lord. It's not about causing or instilling fear in others, intimidating people, but cultivating our own fear of God and recognizing that our power is given to us for those in need around us. Fear of the Lord reminds us that we're accountable in the first place to God. And I think Isaiah understood this because a few chapters earlier, he had encountered the exalted and holy God on his throne in the temple. There's this dramatic scene in chapter 6 where Isaiah sees the glory of God coming in the temple. It's as if the curtain is pulled back and he sees Yahweh of Israel on his throne, exalted. And his response when he sees that is, Woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. But in that process, I think God was preparing Isaiah, because right after that, he calls Isaiah to his ministry to go stand before kings and before those in power and authority. And so in addition to fear being something that holds us accountable, it's also liberating. Fear of the Lord renders us fearless before others because it rightly orients us to God's values and concerns. And sometimes leaders are paralyzed by fear of those they lead or those they're trying to please. And I think Isaiah's challenge for us then in that sense is to ask us, well, who do we fear? In what ways might you need the Spirit to lead you into dependence on God to free you from the fear of others? Maybe for you, you are afraid of your boss, your parent, your team, 
work at your, your co-workers, David Nacho. Um, <laughs> maybe Isaiah wants to challenge us here on two fronts, maybe to be wary of those who don't live in fear of God, and perhaps we need to cultivate the fear of God in our own lives. The first part of our passage started with that natural image. Remember that shoot coming up out of the stump? And I love how unassuming that is. It's just this little sprout coming up. And I think that's how God likes to work. In the New Testament, Jesus uses the image of a mustard seed to describe the kingdom. The seed of the kingdom grows rapidly. And, quote, though it is the smallest of all seeds, yet when it grows, it is the largest of garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds come and perch in its branches. That's how God's kingdom works. It starts small. It starts unassuming in the places that you might not otherwise notice unless a prophet of God points it out. And from that little shoot in verse 1, new creation bursts forth here in verse 6. And verses 6 to, 6 to 10 describe this in vivid detail. But why are we shifting from a passage that talks about the Messiah to suddenly talking about new creation and a wolf and a lamb lying down together and a nursing child playing by a viper's pit? Yikes. Some African readers are, are very attuned to the relationship between these scenes because they've seen the reverse lived out. Hulisani Ramatswana notes that one of the ongoing impacts of unjust colonial rule in Africa has been ecological devastation. In the late 1800s and early 1900s, European powers partitioned the African continent for the express purpose of exploitation. In South Africa, where Ramatswana lives, the Native Land Act of 1913 gave 92% of the land of South Africa to whites. Their use of the land was often exploitative, sucking natural resources with little or no regard for the land's condition and alienating people from the land. Similar stories play out in our own time as well. Today in Ukraine, Vladimir Putin's genocidal war has devastated the environment and caused daily threats of greater environmental disaster. There are threats of uncontrolled radioactive leakage from power plants, air pollution from explosions, soil contamination, huge areas being deforested, loss of nature preserves, illegal mining in occupied areas without proper environmental precautions, hydrogen sulfide released into the sea. Isaiah, Isaiah knew these realities well um, in addition to uh, what we see today. The Assyrians, that big empire that was breathing down the neck of Israel and Judah and, and to some extent uh, attacking the land, were known for chopping down all the fruit trees, all the olive trees, all the vineyards when they would attack a people to cut off all possible food supplies. And they would also salt the fields and burn them so that people could not have food in the future either. It shouldn't surprise us then that the return of a just king leads to creation's flourishing here in Isaiah 11. The wolf will lie with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the goat. The calf and the lion and the yearling together. 
and a little child will lead them. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Earlier I mentioned that a sign of good leadership is that people around you flourish. Another sign, according to scripture, is how well creation flourishes. In the New Testament, in Romans 8, Paul, the Apostle Paul, says that creation is groaning and waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. In other words, creation is waiting for human beings or a human being who exhibits the kind of creation, care, and stewardship that was supposed to characterize humanity in the beginning. You know, at Christmas time, we sing as part of uh, Joy to the World, no more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. This is Isaiah's vision. Where sin had brought curse to the ground, the just rule of Christ brings joy to the whole earth. What might it look like for you as a church, for us as a community, to help our neighbors, many of whom share this longing for a world restored, by pointing them toward this creation-renewing king? When I got married, I was already an avid at outdoorsman. I loved hiking and climbing and mountaineering, all of it. But I wouldn't say that I was good at seeing the outdoors. I wasn't always observing as I spent time outside. And when my wife Abby and I got married, I remember thinking uh, that how many stops we took when we walked, uh, when we would go uh, climbing or hiking or something like that. And at first I was thinking, let's just get there, let's go, let's go. Um, but then I realized that she had an appreciation for noticing things. We'd stop and pay attention to birds or insects or rocks, lots of, lots of rocks. We hiked down into the Grand Canyon and, you know, there were, it's like a kid in a candy store. Um, so many rocks. Uh, and and uh, noticing uh, all the details in the forest. And I think that's what prophets are good at doing, right? Helping us see what we, we don't otherwise see so that we can live differently in the present. And this is what Isaiah is doing as a prophet. He's painting a picture of a different kind of reality to help us to live into that different sort of reality because our minds are so often held captive by the dominant visions and stories of our time. We need spirit-anointed, prophetic vision to break through the normal to help us see otherwise. Let's pray that God will form in us this Advent, a spiritual groaning for a different kind of world. Let's pray that God will form us to be a signpost community that points toward the spirit-anointed king. May we become people who, when all looks beyond hope, we can say, look, a shoot coming up from the stump, a branch growing from the root. In closing, I'd like to pray the following words from Romans 15 over you. Let's pray together. 
May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you the same attitude of mind toward each other that Christ Jesus had, so that with one mind and one voice you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. May you accept one another then, just as Christ accepted you, in order to bring praise to God. For I tell you that Christ has become a servant of the Jews on behalf of God's truth, so that the promises made to the patriarchs might be confirmed, and moreover, that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. As Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will spring up, one who will arise to rule over the nations. In him, all the Gentiles will hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. You've been listening to the First Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. For more sermons and information about our church's services and programs, please visit firstbc.org.